You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Man, I am so glad Kirkwood is back. Amen. Amen. We're never giving you another vacation. Um, it is good to have you guys back. I'm, Lauren, we're, glad, we're f- far happier that you're back, than he, but we're glad he's back too. Good. Let me introduce some folks to you. Uh, Dr. Barry McCarty, he preached here within the last year. Miss Pat is with him. They're on their way back home to Truett McConnell University, where he is the professor of rhetoric and communication. He heads up that whole department there. Good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, was good to Deb and myself in a difficult day. He was a breath of fresh air and a drink from a cool spring and the balm of Gilead and all that other stuff rolled up into one. Now, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to take it and go to where Kirkwood just read, Proverbs chapter 25. We're finishing up. I won't get quite through. I'm going to come back to this whole issue of self-control next Sunday, I think. Uh, So we'll see how the Lord leads this week. But we're finishing up the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. All nine of these gifts, some have said that... uh, The reason why Paul gave this last was because it sums up all the others. Or if you see this in someone, self-control, it's usually an indication that the others are there, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, If you want to see this whole issue of self-control, and Kirkwood is right, uh, we all struggle with that. In fact, that's my first point, uh, which I'll get to probably in the next 30 minutes. Um, If you want to see this in life... Some of you that are older will remember the name Easy Eddie. He was an incredibly sharp, brilliant, slick, however, lawyer. Uh, He had one client, and the only thing he was to do was to keep that one client out of prison. He may have been the highest paid criminal attorney in the United States during the 20s and the 30s. Uh, And the only thing was this in his life. He had everything in life he could have wanted. He lived in a mansion on one entire city block in Chicago that was completely fenced in. And in that mansion, he had live-in maids, live-in butlers. He had every car that he wanted, dressed like he just stepped out of GQ magazine. Uh, The thing was this. He was an officer of the court And he ignored the continuous breaking of the law. He ignored the selling of alcohol during prohibition. He ignored the whole issue of prostitution and gambling. And uh, all of the things that were taking place, drug use, all of the things that were taking place in Chicago in the 20s and the 30s, including all of the murders, and I don't mean just one or two, I mean scores of people whose lives were snuffed out because Easy Eddie's boss was a guy by the name of Al Scarface Capone. Uh, Eddie overlooked it all. He, He lived a life that was out of control. Al Capone certainly lived a life that was completely out of control. In fact, he dies in 47 Uh, And doctors say he had the mentality of a 12-year-old at that point in his life when he died. Because that's what happens when you have areas of your life completely out of control. There's no self-control. 
Easy Eddie worried about that. It bothered him that he had a life that was just out of control. No self-control, no self-discipline. And the reason he worried about that was because he had one soft spot, and the soft spot was a little boy. It was his son, and he loved that boy. And uh, the interesting thing is this, is if you read the story of Easy Eddie, uh, the fact of the matter is this, he kept that boy out of Chicago, and he kept him over in another house. He gave him the best of everything, best of education, best of clothes, best of care, best of home, everything the kid could want. And he taught that boy morals and ethics and values as if he were an evangelical. He taught that kid how to live the right life, how to say no to what was wrong, how to say yes to what was right. But the thing that aided him was that his life was so out of control that he could not give him the one thing the boy needed. And what was that? An example. An example of a life of self-control, self-discipline, making the right choices. But Easy Eddie knew this. If, if, if I'm going to live that kind of life, I've got to turn evidence on the boss who was Al, Scarface, Capone. I've got to turn evidence on him. And if I turn evidence on him, he'll kill me. But Easy Eddie came to the place where he was willing to do it. He wanted to do the right thing, to leave the right example for his son. And so he turned evidence. It was not the bookkeeper. It was the lawyer. It was Easy Eddie who turned evidence on Al Capone. And they got him for tax evasion. And they put him in Alcatraz. And one day to Al Capone leaving Alcatraz, Easy Eddie was shot by gang members down an alley off of a street in Chicago. He gave his life to show an example of self-control. Now, if you want to see a, a real biblical example of out of control, look at Solomon. And that's why I want you to go to Proverbs. I thought about going to Ecclesiastes uh, because he just gives his life completely out of control. The first several chapters of Ecclesiastes, you see Solomon whose life is completely out of control but he's going to come here in Proverbs. Now, let me explain Proverbs briefly to you. When you come to the book of Proverbs, you come to these Proverbs, these wisdom sayings. Sometimes you'll have two verses that will deal with one area of life, and then you'll come to three verses that deal with something else, and then you'll come to six verses that deal with something else, and then you'll come back to four verses that will deal with the topic that you started off with. It's just these kind of, it's kind of eclectic, but you've got these different themes. So most Old Testament commentaries will take the book of Proverbs and wrap it around themes so that you'll have the theme of... Uh, home that deals with domestic issues. You'll have communication issues, which we're going to look at uh, next week, Lord willing. Uh, you'll have moral issues. You'll have issues with honesty and with work and things like that. Well, when you come to the 25th chapter, let me, I, I sat down last night uh, to eat a bowl of cereal. I had my Bible open in front of me because I wanted just to think. I like on Saturday nights just to think about uh, the sermon. And as I was going through chapter 25, I picked up in verse 16 to the end of the chapter that Solomon was giving us all of these things here um, that are examples of life out of control. So now you should have a copy of God's Word. 
I want you to look with me, beginning in verse 16, and just let me go through this. Verse 16 and 17 go together. And listen to what Solomon is doing. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it. <laughs> Don't you love scripture? <laughs> um, right before lunch, what a pleasant thing to read. Um, well, there you go, verse 16. Do you know what that is? That's a lack of self-control. You ate too much honey. But verse 17 goes with it. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, or he will become weary of you and hate you. Have you ever had a friend that when you built a friendship, it was just, it got to be an everyday thing? Every day, every day, every day. And then it got to be more than every day. It got to be every hour, every hour, every hour. And you just thought to yourself, can you give me a break? Can we have some daylight here between each other for just a little while? Well, that's what he's talking about. People that do that, what's that a lack of? Self-control. They don't know how to control a friendship. Verse 18, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow, something that beats you over the head or something that jabs you like a sword or a sharp arrow is a man who tells lies about you. You ever had anybody lie about you? I have, and it's just like that. It's like somebody just punches you in the stomach or somebody just jabs you in the heart with a sharp sword or a sharp arrow. What is that? It is called false witness. It's a lack of self-control. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a, faithful, in a faithless man in a time of trouble. Unreliability. Why is he so unreliable? No self-control. Verse 20, like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Have you ever, have you ever known somebody who is just inappropriate in every situation? I, I mean, in every situation. I, I have known people like this in a moment of grief, in a moment of tragedy, in a moment of sadness. They're over there humming um, I'm so happy, you know, like a room without a roof. And it's just, you just think to yourself, what is wrong with you? There is just absolutely no restraint. Why? No self-control. You get to verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will be your reward. Do you know what he's saying right there? D don't take vengeance into your own hands. Let the Lord do that. Why do we want... Why do we want to strike back and lash out at people when they do something to us? Lack of self-control. Verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. Do you see what he's doing here? What, what do you call that, good doctor, when you, when you do that? It, it's a metaphor. It's a when you're back and forth like that. Now, he, he's the dictionary on I ask him that because he's the dictionary on it. He knows all this stuff. When the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance, here's the metaphor there. It, it's, it's terrible. It's sharp. It's, it's, uh, it, it's bad. A backbiting tongue. That's slander. When somebody slanders you, it's like the north wind that bring forth, uh, brings forth that rain, a cold rain, a sudden rain. Why do they do that slander, that gossip? A lack of self-control. Verse 24, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in the house shared with a contentious woman. Or, hey, let me quickly add, or man. It can be either one. Sometimes it's both. And they just irritate each other. Domestic disputes. A lot of domestic disputes are caused from what? 
a lack of self-control. Do y'all see what I'm doing here? Or do you see what Solomon's doing here? Verse 26, like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Compromise. Why do we compromise? Lack of self-control. Is it not good to eat much? It's not good to eat much honey. I'm wanting to get a lot of honey in here today. Is it not good to eat much honey? Nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. That's conceitedness. Why are the conceited conceited? Lack of self-control. Now, watch it how he puts the capstone on this entire thing here. He comes and he says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no self-control over his spirit. There it is, a lack of self-control. No self-control whatsoever. Now, I want to show you two things this morning. Just two things out of this verse, and of course, I'm going to have to move to other portions of Scripture to give you some insight into this, but the first one is this. We all struggle. I don't care who you are. We can sit there, and we can look as holy and as righteous as we want to, but I want to tell you something. We all struggle with the issue of self-control. He comes and he says this, it is a man who has no control that is he doesn't rein in. He doesn't pull it in. He, doesn't, uh, he has no restraint on his life. He, he, he tells himself, he never tells himself no. He can never say no to himself. He just is completely out of, out of control over, look at this, over his, in the Hebrew, ruach, his spirit. That is in the area of his emotions, in the area of his passions, in the area of his desire, in the area of his longings, in the area of his want. He never tells himself no. He never pulls himself back. He never withholds or denies himself anything that he wants. In fact, that's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He says, I gave my heart to everything. Anything that I saw, anything that I wanted, I gave myself to it just to see if I could satisfy myself and if I could find some purpose and meaning in life, which if you read Ecclesiastes, he couldn't any other way outside of yielding to the will of God Almighty. So Solomon comes here and he says, listen, there are areas that get out of control in your life. I'm going to give you three of them. Number one, the first area that so often we struggle with uh, out of control are appetites. Now, I want you to do this. Put your finger right there. Just go back a few pages to Proverbs 23. And look at verse 1 and look at verse 2 of Proverbs 23. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, which number one means you're going to have a great meal, number one. Number two, it's going to be endless. Consider carefully what is before you. You consider that there is no end to what a ruler can bring out to eat. And put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Now, he's telling you, listen, that's a metaphor of your life, not just of eating. But since we all understand, we generally think of appetite. Have you ever heard of King Adolf Frederick of Sweden? King Adolf Frederick of Sweden, king for 20 years of that northern country um, had a problem of overeating. 
Now, the pictures that I've seen of him that were drawn of him never drew him to be somebody that was heavy, but he had an issue with overeating. On February the 12th, 1771, it was a holiday in Sweden, and he decided that they were going to have this lush banquet, which they did. And that night at supper, he ate lobster, caviar, he ate sauerkraut and kipper, you know, little sausages, boiled meat and turnips. Now, you know, all of that appeals to me except the caviar. I'm, I don't eat, I don't, I'm not, the other stuff's okay with other stuff, but that stuff together sounds kind of yuck to me. Uh, he ate a huge dinner and then he wanted dessert on top of what I just described to you that he ate. What he what he wanted for dessert was this. They make a bun. You see them all over Europe. It's a little sweet bun cut in two, and it's like they piled up all this whipped cream in the middle, and they put the bun together. It looks like a hamburger of whipped cream, and they've got sprinkled on top of it all this powdered sugar. Well, now that's Swedish, but in Sweden, it becomes a little more elaborate. They serve that sweet bun with all of this cream in the middle with the powdered sugar on, on, on top. They serve it in a bowl of warm milk. And then they ladle chocolate all over it. And then they put fruit all over it. Now, one of those is plenty enough. But that night, on February the 12th, 1771, King Frederick ate 14 of them on top of what he had already eaten. And it is history to say he went straight to bed from the meal. His little tummy, bless his heart, began to hurt, and he died within hours. And Adolf Frederick goes down in history as the king who ate himself to death. Now let me tell you something. That may not be your problem. It's not my problem. That's obvious. <laughs> but it may be another appetite. It may be an appetite for the sensual. It may be the appetite for pornography. It may be an appetite for affairs. It may be an appetite in the other direction. It may be an appetite that has never satisfied work that is always continuous and more and more and more of it. It may be the appetite for gossip. It may be the appetite for slander. It may be the appetite for lying. It may be some kind of appetite for notoriety or for love. Or There is just this insatiable drive and hunger for some kind of attention in life. He comes right here and he says this, you've got this uncontrolled spirit for some kind of appetite, and what you need to understand is it's going to eventually destroy your life. Now, what appetite do you have? What appetite do you think the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about right now? And if that's not it, let me move on, and let me give you the second thing, and that is, do you have this uncontrolled spirit for ambition? Now, let me just read you something over in Philippians chapter 2. You know, ambition is good. There's nothing wrong with the right ambition in life. In fact, we all ought to have some ambition in life, but it's when ambition becomes self-centered. 
It's when ambition becomes self-willed. It's when ambition is willing to step on whoever else in order for you to achieve what you want. Paul comes in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and he says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. This whole issue of ambition in life, there is something that I want and nothing and no one is going to stand in my way until I get it. Now, you want a biblical illustration of that? It'd have to be Absalom. Absalom, the Bible tells us this about Absalom, the son of David. He probably, most likely, would have been the king to follow. David had his life not gone uh, out of control. Uh, the Bible says that he was the, he was the most handsome man in all the land. Land. He was good looking. He was tall. Here's Absalom. He had this head full of thick raven black hair. And every year he would cut that hair off and have it weighed. Kirkwood, wonder what your hair would weigh. <laughs> I don't know who in the world would do that. Man, if that isn't conceitedness, I don't know what it is. Well, let me just cut all of these locks off and let's just see how much it weighs. It became like, you know, a sporting event or something, I guess, in the land of Israel. Everybody's showing up. They got their tickets to see how much his airways. Kind of deal. Well, listen, he had an appetite. He had an, he had an ambition to take the father's throne, his father's throne. So that he hired 50 men, and 50 men would run ahead of his chariot. And whatever village or town or city they would go into, they would get there ahead of him, and they would stand there and applaud when he came through the gates. Can you imagine that? And he would sit in the gates, which was tantamount to sitting at City Hall down at the courthouse, and he would look at everybody that came by, and he would say, have you got an issue? You want to talk to the king? Well, it's too bad you can't ever get a hold of that king. He's never in town. He's never around. You cannot get through to him. But if I were king, if I were king, let me tell you, I would be right here. I'd listen to whatever you had need of, and I would grant you your request so that the Bible said the whole of Israel he captured the heart of all of Israel. And then the true Absalom came out. He took his father's concubines and in front of everybody that could see, he bedded every one of them just to disgrace his father. Here the wickedness came out of his heart. He would kill his dad. He had his men chase his father so that they could catch him. And what happens in the end is this, is in his life, the very essence of his vanity is wrapped around a limb so that he becomes a pin cushion for the spears of the army of Israel. There he is. A man with all this ambition. And it's all out of control. How about you? Ambition in life is fine until the ambition begins to drive everything in your life, and it becomes the thing that hurts those around you. Let me give you one more, one more, and it's anger. This whole issue of self-control and anger, and Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, be angry and yet do not sin. It is possible to be angry and not to be in sin. But for the most part, most of our angry is not righteous, and it is sinful. Amen. Amen goes right there. 
I know it hurts, but it's true. The popping off, the hot-headedness, the getting upset, uh, the walking off, the storming off, the blistering tirades that we launch into. Let me tell you something. You can see a lack of self-control in the area of our anger, our temper. Now, let me, let me explain something to you. Our whole life might be wonderful. Everything may be under control, but when one area of life is out of control, the rest of life suddenly begins to order itself around the area that's out of control. We begin to make all of our schedule, we begin to make everything else circle up around the area that we long for and desire that has got our attention and is out of control. Everything else begins to cater to that. I'll never forget December the 29th, 1978. It was nine months before we were married. It was your birthday. Do you remember your birthday? December 29th. You know where we were? We were at Joe Daddy's house, and her daddy played football for Clemson back under Coach Howard, that great Clemson coach. See, there's such a hush all over this place. And um, we were there watching the Gator Bowl because the Ohio State Buckeyes were playing Clemson University for the Gator Bowl that night. And that night, coaching the Ohio State Buckeyes was the great legendary Woody Hayes. Everybody knew Woody Hayes. He was one of the top coaches in the country. He was, listen, he was legendary in his own time. Literally, he was a legend. All the things that he had accomplished, all the things that he had done. But that night, old Charlie Bowman, I believe Charlie Bowman was south, from South Carolina. That old boy, Charlie Bowman, who was a nose guard on the defense for Clemson, intercepted a pass from the Ohio State quarterback. And he ran it out into the bench over there on the Ohio State side. And there, the coach of the Ohio State, Woody Hayes, caught him and began to punch him in the throat. Now listen, before all of God and heaven and the angels in the ethereal pantheon there, and before all of America, we watched. I believe your daddy had his first heart attack that night. When that guy, when that coach caught Charlie and started punching him on the sideline, it was unreal. Well, Clemson went on to win the game, as usual. That's just tearing y'all up, isn't it? I, I am breaking every rule that a pastor should never do. Anyway, just, but listen to this. The next morning, the Ohio State fired Woody Hayes. Now, nobody remembers anything about Woody Hayes today. Nobody remembers anything about Woody Hayes other than the fact that he grabbed a Clemson player and started punching him on the sidelines at the Gator Bowl in 1978. Nobody remembers all of the wins. Nobody remembers all of the accomplishments of Woody Hayes' life. Very sad um, that he was fired. What an incredibly sad end to a, really a great career. But that's what happens when you lose your temper. Let me tell you, when you lose your temper, you not only lose your temper, you may lose your marriage. You may lose your spouse. You may lose your kids. You may lose your job. But I can tell you what you will lose for certain, you will lose the respect of everybody around you who sees it. You lose your temper, you will lose respect because everybody will know 
Here is somebody who has no self-control. Let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. We will struggle with self-control until we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, go back and look at what Solomon says here. He says, like a city that is broken into and without walls. What happens? A city that's broken into and has its walls destroyed is open to anything that comes along. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something. If you've got one little area of your life that is out of control, you need to understand that it is a crack in the Christian armor that becomes cavernous. And you will cascade down that cavern until you reach a catastrophe. And it will happen. It happens even to those of us who've trusted Jesus Christ. Man, I could talk to you about David. I could talk to We're looking at Solomon. But let me take you back to a guy. And his name was Moses. Do you remember last week we talked about this very thing? Meekness, gentleness, humility. Do you know the Bible says that Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth? Now, do you know what was going on in the 12th chapter of Numbers here? His sister, his older sister Miriam was mad at him. She was mad at him because of who he married. And uh, she was mad at him and wanted to know, is he the only one that God can speak through? And, and, and so she got upset and mad and she didn't like who he married. And I grew up with two older sisters. I want to tell you, I had three mothers because they were 12 and 14 when I came along. Uh, my sisters were 12 and 14 when I came along and God gave my dad a son just to help rescue him. So anyway... Uh, he, he's got an older sister who just really turns on him with a vengeance, Miriam. And he never says anything back. She stirs up his brother Aaron to get mad at him. And, and right in the middle of that, the word of God says this was the meekest man. Now, do you remember when I told you about the word meekness and gentleness out of the Greek, that it describes this power under control. Here was Moses. Moses, the first 40 years of his life, was probably on track to become Pharaoh. He was powerful. He had an incredible education. He had a great presence about himself. He was power in Egypt the first 40 years of his life. He gets to a bush and he surrenders all that power to God Almighty. And here is all that power brought under control. It's an incredible story. You stop and think about it. So God's got him under his control, but listen, there is a crack that is there. You get to the 20th chapter of Numbers, and over in Numbers chapter 20, he, um, the people are mad at him again. They're contending with him, and um, they're, they're mad and they're upset because they're thirsty and they want water, and of course, they're belly aching. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. We just should be dead. We'd be better off dead than where we are because you brought us out here. And so Moses and Aaron didn't know what to do and God calls them and he says, listen, Moses, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes that, they, they, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So this is what Moses does. He goes and he gets the rod. He took the rod from before the Lord just as God had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. Now here it is. He's going to lose it. 
He looks at all those people and he says, you bunch of rebels. You bunch of hard-headed rebels. You're never satisfied. You're never happy. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to bring forth water for you out of this rock. Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out. And then God said to him, Moses, you blew it. You're out of control. You ought, to be more, you, ought to be spiritually, you ought to be more spiritually mature than that. You got out of control. You read them the right act, and you hit the rock. You didn't speak to the rock. You should have hit the people and spoke to the rock instead of hitting the rock and speaking to the people. And so he says, I've just got to tell you, I'm yanking this privilege and this opportunity to lead them into the land away from you. Now listen, God still speaks to him. God still talks to him. He still leads the people of God. Uh, God still delivers him from all kind of stuff. Just read chapter 21, 22, 23, all of this stuff, all the way till you get to the end of the book of Numbers. And what you're going to see is this, is that God keeps his word and he says, that's it, bud. I'm not going to desert you, but you did not give me glory because you left, lost your self-control. And you're going to pay for that. And he does. And you say, what do we do? Man, you hear about somebody like Moses and you think, how then shall we live? What's going to happen to us? Let me get you to turn to one last passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I want you to listen because there's something going on in this story you, you need to pay attention to. Jesus comes and he tells his disciples that he is going now to Jerusalem and that the chief priest and the elders and the scribes are going to kill him, but he'll be raised up on the third day. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, you see that? Verse 22, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now watch what Jesus says here. And let me get a little grammatical. Let me deal with a little bit of language. Jesus comes and he says to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must up our neoma. Our neoma means to deny. You put apo in front of it, which is the prefix, which means away from. You put that to it, it means you, you push away from you and deny yourself. You push this stuff away from you and deny yourself. That is an aorist imperative. The imperative means it's a command. The aorist means it has happened in the past tense. He says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must have denied himself. And take up his cross and follow me. The follow me is present imperative. It's a command, but it's a present tense. And what Jesus is saying in that verse is this, is if you're going to take up your cross and follow me, at some point you must have denied yourself. You must have come to the place where you tell yourself no. Now look at the situation Jesus was just in. He's telling them, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be put to death. And Peter comes up. What Jesus is doing right there is he's denying himself. 
I'd love to stay, but I can't stay. That's not the Father's will. I would love not to suffer, but I can't not suffer because that's the Father's will. I'd like not to have to be crucified and die and be separated from the Father, but that's not the Father's will. I must do it. He's denying himself, and he's saying, listen, Father, not my will, your will be done. And in the middle of that, his top his top disciple comes to him and says, no, 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 no. You got to do your will here. We're not going to let this happen. And Jesus looks at him. And I just hear in this, Peter, you don't know how hard this is. Get behind me, Satan. And he denies himself. And Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower... You're going to have to deny yourself. There's going to have to be some telling self, no. No. And it's not easy. Let me close by giving you a good illustration. It's not spiritual, but it's a good illustration of self-control. Let me take you back to 1942 South Pacific. Uh, there were several carrier groups in the South Pacific in 1942, February. In fact, it was February 20th, 1942, when they had intercepted all of this Japanese communication, and they knew that the Japanese were about to attack at a certain place in the South Pacific. And so all of the planes off of those carrier groups had gone up. And in one of those was a 28-year-old, I think he was 27, 28-year-old, Graduate of the Naval Academy, the guy's name was Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare, right there. Handsome guy, young guy, so self-disciplined, so full of, uh, of self-control. He gets up in the formation. All these planes fly off the carrier groups, and there's not a plane left there on a, one of those aircraft carriers because it's an all-out assault to take back and to thwart whatever the Japanese were about to do. And so as they get up, Butch recognizes that uh, his fuel tank had not been topped off. And so he radios his commander, and the commander gives him the order because he doesn't want to do it. And he says, this is an order. You turn around and you go back to the Lexington. Butch would have been able to have made the run, come back, but he would not have been able to make it all the way. So his commander sends him back, Lieutenant Butch O'Hare. And on his way back, up in the clouds, he looks down and he sees this squadron of Japanese bombers and zeros. And he thinks to himself, I'm the only plane that's here. I can't go. I can't radio. I can't let them know I'm here. I can't let them know they're going somewhere. And he says, what am I going to do? I'm the only one. Here comes the self-control right here. He says, I'm the only plane between these uh, carrier groups and uh, these Japanese bombers and zeros, and he says, I've got to do all I can do. So he comes down. He surprises the Japanese. He comes down out of the clouds with those 50 calibers on that plane just blazing. He shoots down one. He shoots down another. He circles back around. He comes back up through him. He begins to break up the formation of the Japanese planes. He shoots until he doesn't have anything left. He has shot down the second in command of that Japanese squadron. He has shot a hole into the wing of the commander of the squadron. And he runs out of, uh, he runs out of ammunition and he thinks this, well, if, if I can run and hit their tails, if in some way I can come by and just hit their tails, I can knock it, chip it, 
do some kind of damage so they can't control their planes. And so this guy starts doing, he starts dive bombing these, with the plane, these bombers and these, and these uh, Japanese zeros trying to knock their tails off, trying to damage their planes in some kind of way and, until he runs out of fuel. He runs out of fuel. He makes it back onto the Lexington. Uh, the Japanese squadron breaks up. They turn around. They think, well, this, you know, this, this American is crazy. We got to get out of here. And so they got out of there and they did not realize what this guy had done until they looked at the footage and uh, the footage showed that this guy shot down five Japanese uh, planes and damaged several others, and he became the first flying ace of World War II, and he was awarded by Franklin Roosevelt the Medal of Honor. One year later, Butch O'Hare is killed in a fight, in an aerial fight, at the age of 29. But his hometown wouldn't forget him. They wouldn't forget his sacrifice. They wouldn't forget what he had done. They wouldn't forget the discipline and the control of his life, of him giving himself for others. And that's why if you fly into Chicago, you'll land at O'Hare Field. And between Terminals 1 and 2, you'll see a statue to Butch O'Hare, and the story will be there. Where did the where did a kid like that learn that kind of discipline and self-sacrifice and control? From his dad. Because his dad happened to be Easy Eddie. Let me tell you something. We have an entire generation watching us who desperately need to see Men, men, and women who exhibit spiritual self-control. Let's stand and pray about it. Now maybe your life is out of control in some area, some way, some place. It's just out of control. And the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about it right now. Maybe the fact of the matter is this. You, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never put your faith and your trust in Him. And this morning, you know, I've got a life that's out of control. I've got sin out of control. I've got habits that are out of control. Well, I want to tell you something. I don't care where you go to get discipline. I don't care where you go to get education. That's never going to be any better in your life until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you this morning need to come to Jesus. You need to come to the one who had enough control, who pushed all of his own personal wants out of the way and died for you. He gave his life for you. So that in this moment, you could call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I want to give my life to you. Just in the quietness of your heart, just pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm coming, putting my trust and my faith in you.
Thank you for dying on a cross for me. Thank you for being resurrected to give me eternal life. I am now yours in Jesus' name. And if you just prayed that prayer, make your way here to the front. Slip out from wherever you are. People are praying for you right now. If you wonder, what are all these people doing? They're praying for you. They're praying for you to have the boldness to step out and to come publicly and say, I've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Others of you this morning, listen, I have no idea what God is saying to you. But maybe it's in the area of an appetite or in the area of ambition or maybe even in the area of anger, maybe in the area of communication, there's something out of control in your life and it's not pleasing to God. And I can promise you this, you're going to be like a city without a wall. You're opening yourself up to everything that will come along. Why not come and surrender that area to Jesus right now? Father, Lord, this invitation is what we've moved toward this entire service. All of our singing, all of our fellowshipping, all of our gathering together, all of our sitting around your word is for this moment where we give people the opportunity to come and to do business with you. Oh, Father, this morning I pray that the invitation would be pleasing in your sight. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Your head's bowed. Your eyes closed. Would you come right now as God speaks? Kirkwood's going to lead us. You come as he sings. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.